0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello, and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Harbin, and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson, James Forsyth, and Katie Balls. Well, it's the spring statement this week with Chancellor Rishi Sunak under increasing pressure from different parts of his party to do something to help Brits struggling with the cost of living crisis. Katie, what have we been hearing from uh, the Chancellor and his allies over the weekend?
2: So I think when the spring statements first envisioned by the Chancellor, the idea was that it would be a, a mini update, it would be very light on policies or new announcements, and instead it would be largely focused on economic forecasts, perhaps with a sketch of Russia's broader ambitions on taxation. What has changed is that the Chancellor has found he's gone from one crisis in the form of the pandemic to another in the form of Russia's invasion of Ukraine which is clearly exacerbating the cost of living crisis. And therefore the Chancellor's under a lot of pressure to announce some measures on Wednesday when he gets up in the dispatch box, which are going to help with that. And there's clearly Labour on one hand calling for lots of things, but I think as ever, I think where the pressure is the most relevant to the Chancellor is on his own side. You have had 50 MPs last week sign a letter calling for a cut in fuel duty. That is something that there are very strong hints is going to happen. Though obviously the exact details are not not currently known. And then also, I think the other thing to look out for is clearly on national insurance. Now, the national insurance hike is very unpopular with the, with the Tory party. Labour have also called for it to go. Given how much Rishi Sunak has said that needs to stay, I don't we're about to see that go completely. But there is a question of what you can do to soften the impact when it comes into effect effect next month in terms of the thresholds by which you start paying national insurance and therefore there could be a way of moving the thresholds and which stops some of the lower earners from having to pay that just yet. And I think that's one thing that is being looked at. In terms of other bits flying around, I mean I think that when you look at the May's lecture, which was Rishi Sunak's big vision for the economy post COVID, it gives you a hint of what he wants to do in things like enterprise. But I think if you're looking at where this is going, I mean, we heard it on Sunday yet again, which is Rishi Sunak's insistent he... He is a low tax Tory. Is he going to be able to do some things on Wednesday which is going to um, add to that? I think one thing he is reluctant to do is more new spending. We heard that when he addressed Tory MPs after the budget, said every marginal pound going forward should go and cutting taxes. And therefore, while there have been some senior Tories, and I think we can include the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, and there's talking about more defence spending. That is not something the Treasury um, seem to want to go near at all at the moment. And instead, I think tax cutting would be their preference if they can do. Thing, particularly given inflation,
3: I think this is a more dramatic moment than a lot of people have appreciated. Because Rishi Sunak, you know, he has gone on record saying, as Katie says, that if the if the financial situation is any better, he wants that extra money to get put into tax cuts. Now, that wasn't a if, or let's presuming there's no u- war in Ukraine. This is a clear test of his word given to backbench MPs. Now. Question, what happens if Boris Johnson says, you know, Rishi, I know what you said to those MPs, but I'm the Prime Minister and I'm telling you I want the extra money to get put into more spending or, or more uh, defence spending. Does he then go back on his word? Does this put him in a very difficult political position? Now, it was quite a dramatic promise he made, all the more dramatic because he didn't make it in the House of Commons. It was only in the evening when he was talking to the MPs did he make what you might call the, the Sunak Golden Rule because that's what he said his pledge was, might he now be about to break that golden rule, even within a few months of making it? And how difficult a position would that put him in personally and politically? So this this Wednesday will be quite an interesting moment for him. He might have to go back to those MPs and say, well, you know, I know I promised you tax cuts, but that there's a war on. But, you know, there's always something dramatic. But there's COVID. But there's a recession. There's always a but. What's the point as a chancellor of making these promises if you can't keep them? Now, this is a party that already went to an election promising the public uh, that they would not raise national insurance, and they're about to do exactly that. Rishi Sunak, by the way, is um, dest- despite describing himself as a low-tax Tory, he is one of the most enthusiastic people of putting this national insurance up. I say enthusiastic not because he likes high taxes, but because he thinks this is the only moral way of paying for extra spending. But if you go around the cabinet table, you will find him one of the most people committed to this national insurance tax going ahead. So his, the brand, if you like, the political brand of the man who is tipped to be the next prime minister, if heaven forfend something would happen to Boris Johnson, is now in the spotlight.
1: James, what kind of a mood is the Conservative Party in uh, on the tax pledges and broken promises that that Fraser's just outlined? A few months ago, when Boris Johnson was in a particularly weak position with his leadership, that there, there was a lot of mutiny over the Conservatives putting taxes up. Has that faded as other things have hove into view, at least for the time being, including the war in Ukraine?
0: I think there's a belief that this spring statement has to do something to help with the cost of living. Now, the traditional Tory argument on cost of living is we will tax you less than Labour and that's how we'll help you with the cost of living. That was essentially the Tory rebuttal in 2015 to Ed Miliband's whole argument about the cost of living and the squeeze middle. Obviously, the national insurance increase complicates that argument because while while they can argue that they will tax you less than Labour, they still can't get round the fact that they are putting up taxes. So I think the question is, you know, how much does the spring statement reposition them there? What does it offer people in terms of help with the cost of living at a time when, you know, petrol prices are at an all-time high? Now, I think there is the only consolation on that front, is that the oil price has come down off its recent peak. It's about $40 down from where it was, partly because people think that the the Chinese economy is going to slow down, which causes other problems. And then I think the other big question is, what do you do about energy bills? I think if, as many people expect, the energy price cap goes up to £3,000 in October, given how much that would put a squeeze on household spending, I think it's very hard to see how that doesn't cause a recession without some kind of government assistance. Now, I think it's quite clear that the Treasury line is we've already done £9 billion for the April price cap increase. We can't know how much it is going up by in October because the markets are so volatile at the moment. So we will come back to that in time. But I think these cost of living issues are are really pressing because if the energy price cap goes up to £3,000 in October, that is going to make a material difference to household incomes quite a long way up the income scale.
1: Katie, looking at Labour now, over the past few weeks, they've talked a lot about energy bills. It's been something that Keir Starmer has raised at Prime Minister's questions. They've also been complaining quite vigorously about the, the link that Sunak and others have been making to the increased pressures caused by the war in Ukraine on, on the cost of living crisis. What are we expecting their attack to be this week?
2: So we heard over the weekend various Labour attacks. I mean, Labour still calling for VAT to be on energy bills. As we're pointing out, that does have... Issues in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol. If you remove VAT on energy bills under the protocol, that would not apply to Northern Ireland, um, which I think might be one of several reasons that the Tories and Rishi Sunak are not currently considering it. You're also hearing a lot about this windfall taxes on North Sea oil companies as a way they would uh, fund some of their pledges. And then effectively, I think the key one, which they're going to keep pushing at, because lots of people around Keir Starmer really think this is a huge political mistake by the Tories is national insurance and saying that that the entire national insurance hike has to go. And I think that what you're hearing people like Rachel Reeves saying is talking about how, you know, the Tories are low growth, high tax and and trying to plant those lines in in terms of criticising Rishi Sunak's response.
1: We had Conservative Spring Conference over the weekend in Blackpool and also the Scottish Conservative Conference in uh, Aberdeen as well. And one of the enduring things from that conference is Boris Johnson's speech where he appeared to compare the war in Ukraine to the Brexit vote. This is what he had to say.
3: I know that it's the instinct of the people of this country, like the people of Ukraine, to choose freedom every time. I can give you a couple of famous recent examples when the British people voted for Brexit in such large numbers, I don't believe it was because they were remotely hostile to, to foreigners. It's because they wanted
1: to be free. James, this has attracted a lot of anger. Do you think it's deserved?
0: I think it was sloppy and ill-thought-out because even if he was not drawing a direct comparison, any linking of those two issues was bound to to cause uproar and division and i think division at a time when unity both at home and with the uk's european allies is important made it made it an ill-guided comment and i think it would have been better to have said something like i always said that brexit meant that we were leaving the european union not europe and the Ukraine crisis is proof that our commitment to the security of the European continent, it has not been changed one jot or one iota by Brexit. We are still there helping and we're still working with our friends and allies in the EU to, to put pressure on Russia. You, know, you could have talked about it like that. I mean, to, to draw any link. What well, was just, and I, I don't think he was trying to draw as much of a link as some of his critics are saying, but it was still, it was still just very ill thought out because it was bound to cause controversy and it was bound to to, to suggest that he was comparing the two things, which is obviously a slightly a ridiculous comparison because you know, there, there is no, you
3: know, uh, you there, there the, the two situations are not analogous. But you know, the funny thing is that Boris used to do my job. He used to be an editor. It's his job to work out when you're going to put together a form of words that will convey a meaning different to what you intend it to do. Now, if anybody in our magazine had written... That the Brits like freedom, just like the Ukrainians. That's why they voted for Brexit, right? I like to think that at least three people would come up to me and say, "Look, Fraser, if this isn't the proof. Are we sure we really want to do this?" Uh, and I'd have said, "No, no, that's obviously the writer has obviously gone a bit crazy. So let's um, let's ask him to rephrase." I, think, so I suspect the, that Boris Johnson intended to cause a fuss here. I think he thought strategically it's within his interests to rally the troops. I find it hard to think he was so naive that he wouldn't have known that a comparison with the, the vote for Brexit and fighting off the Russians was incendiary. He specialises in verbal bombs. That, that, that's, that's what he does. And in this case, of course, you do two things that are deeply unhelpful. One is to basically question the patriotism of those voted for Remain. I think that's an awful thing to do. There were during the campaign I think Brexiteers were very very careful and quite right to to make clear that they might want to leave the EU but but those who wanted to stay in the EU loved freedom, loved their country every bit as much. And the other thing it does, of course, is completely antagonizes the rest of the EU. I mean, I've seen lots of their former... Uh, Car Bill, the former Prime Minister of Sweden, has been denouncing Boris Johnson for this, saying we shouldn't be inviting him to any summits. It reintroduces this sort of Brexit rancor at a time where we had forgotten about Brexit. I mean, Britain, in the last few uh, weeks, has basically been marching lockstep with the European Union. It's been... Um, quite an important healing moment, if you like, to think that after Brexit, we could unite in the face of a common enemy and Europe as a whole, and I mean Europe as opposed to the EU, could come as one. So why would you want to lose that precious moment by making some sort of playground point comparing the Ukrainian a- attacks to to Brexit? So I think it was... Um, it, it was up there with the Jimmy Savile joke, which he made against Kirstarmer in in um, things which should not have been said.
1: And Katie, just on Ukraine, there is a NATO summit later this week. Just fill us in on, on what the political efforts are to uh, try to, to to help Ukraine this week.
2: I think it's interesting. I think that- I think looking at what Boris Johnson's trying to try do in the Ukraine situation, just picking up on what Fraser was saying, just then about those comments, it's interesting that Downstreet has not attempted to, you know, double down on this at all. Instead, you've had, you know, cabinet ministers suggesting that the prime minister has been misinterpreted you've got downing street figures um, you know ultimately suggesting how it appeared in words was not how they thought it would appear when you said and therefore I think there is a sense that this was an error which you don't always see with Boris Johnson when he makes certain comments if if anything they can use it as a, a dividing issue by the way
3: Casey, do we know if it was a scripted error or an ad-libbed error
2: it was as far as I understand it it was in writing in the speech
3: right. so, and those speeches go through several people
2: yeah well, there's a question as to how many people those speeches go through, because I was saying to uh, someone, like, oh, well, you would expect, you know, sh- surely sev- lots of people to look after a speech like that. And they suggested perhaps I was being um, naive as to how many people look over speeches in number 10. But, but I think therefore there is a sense that I think how it appeared in writing, which suggests it is something that they had planned to say was not in the end how it turned out to be executed i think that when it comes to what the prime minister is now planning to do i think part of the reason it's seen as an error by many around the prime minister is they want to project him as a statesman-like figure who is you know ukraine's best friend in all this and therefore that comparison is just distracted from it and suggested it's more trying to score political points, um, which is why you're seeing some rowing back. In terms of this NATO summit, there was a call last night between Zelensky and Boris Johnson. And the UK is once again saying that they are gonna help, you know, drive these talks in terms of what an agreement between Russia and Ukraine could look like on peace talks. I think the issue clearly here is that getting to agreement both sides will go for is still some way away particularly when you start to bring in the leaders and um, you move away from the negotiating team so i think there's a, a long way to go still and i think that's the sense in government and you could also see that i think in comments liz Truss made at the weekend saying that she was actually skeptical these talks were more than you know a smokescreen that putin could find useful to find
1: time to you know double down on the current military efforts thank you katie Thank you, Fraser. And thank you, James. And thank you for listening.